This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your story. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get our three best stories every week. Joy Neal Kidney is a listener in Iowa and has a family full of heroes. And by the way, she listens on WHO, and that's a great station in Des Moines, home of Paul Harvey and so many other broadcasting legends. And we're honored and we're grateful to be on that great flagship station in the great state of Iowa. And Joy writes and records those stories for us. She's told a few for us, actually. And here is Joy Neal Kidney and her story titled Reconciling Dad, the Farmer I Knew, with Dad, the Veteran Pilot. An engine smoked and sputtered. One propeller began to stir on the aging bomber. Then another. The third engine started to shudder and choke. Satisfying sounds of old piston engines. Finally, the last one coughed to life. A few minutes earlier, I had been sitting in the pilot's seat of that World War II flying fortress an old B-17, like the one in the movie Memphis Bell, in the seat where my dad sat seven decades ago. My dad, the farmer. As I sat in the cockpit looking out the pilot's window at the gold-tipped propellers, I tried to imagine that Iowa farmer teaching cadets to fly and later being in charge of that big four-engine bomber. In my mind's snapshot of Dad, he was wearing Big Smith overalls, where in the bib, he carried a pocket watch and a decal bullet pencil with a little metal cap to protect the lead point. Shirt sleeves rolled to the elbow, a Pioneer brand seed corn cap, tired leather work boots, and Rockford socks. Vignettes of him guzzling Coca-Cola from a small, curvy glass bottle, leaving for the field on his red Massey Harris tractor, overseeing his crops from his perch on the gate, throwing back his head when he laughed, penciling neat diagrams and math formulas on scraps of paper, catching a nap at the table after the noon dinner, his head resting on folded arms. That's the dad I knew. My husband, an air traffic controller at the Des Moines airport, had called to let me know that a B-17 was there just for a short stopover. So I rushed out with my camera and asked if I could see inside, telling them, that my dad had flown one in 1945. One man led me up a short ladder into the fuselage, then over a catwalk above the bomb bay to the cockpit. He told me to take all the time I wanted there. As I sat in the pilot's seat, a strong breeze 
buffeted the bomber. It swayed slightly. It sighed and creaked, just like Dad's barn on a windy day. I had forgotten about those friendly sounds. My thoughts turned to Dad's thorough instructions to my sister and me for our summer chores. How many half buckets of corn and oats to feed the hogs? How full to pump water into the cattle tank? And Dad patiently teaching me to shift gears on the Chevy's steering column in the barnyard the summer I learned to drive. It began to dawn on me that he would have used that same thoroughness and patience with young cadets. And I could appreciate that, yes, he would have been put in charge of a multi-engine plane and crew of 10. He eventually became commander of the even larger B-29 Superfortress, with a date set to leave for Saipan and combat over Japan when the war came to an end. While in that rare bomber, I was blessed with a glint of my dad in his other life. As a young lieutenant, in charge of aircraft instead of tractors, airmen instead of livestock. To exit the old warbird, I was told I could climb back through the plane and down the ladder, or I could drop out the way the crew did, through a small door right below the cockpit by grasping the edge and swinging out. There's no photographic evidence, but I did it, just like Dad had long ago. I returned to the other side of the chain-link fence to watch the fortress take off. The four engines were coaxed awake, one at a time. Did Dad also love that deep-throated growl? In a few minutes, the awkward to taxi aircraft headed toward the runway. Nose up, tail down. It lumbered behind a hangar. A roar signaled takeoff, and the plexiglass nose emerged from behind the building, pointing the bomber down the runway. By the time that sleek, rugged old warbird leveled off and disappeared in the distance, I could readily reconcile my dad the farmer with dad the young World War II pilot. And what a great story. Again, that was Joy Neal Kidney, and she's from Des Moines, Iowa. And this story comes to us from Des Moines, and thanks to our great station in Des Moines, WHO. And it's so great to hear someone trying to understand her dad's other life, that life before the life. And my goodness... Take a look one day at one of those B-17 flying fortresses. She said it was a sleek, rugged old warbird, and that it was. Indeed, it was the third most produced bomber of all time, and it's unimaginable that we could have thought of even winning the war without our great industrial capacity. Join Neil Kidney's story, her father's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories. And we talk a lot on this show about criminal justice reform and prisoner re-entry. Because, my goodness, the folks in prisons, they're going to come out again. And how do they come out? And are they prepared? And do we believe in second chances in this country? And, of course, we do. And we're not talking about the crazed serial killer, but for those kind of hardened criminals, um, well, that's what prisons are built for. But for others, well, there's got to be a second chance. After prisoners have served their sentences and are released, 60% or more are arrested again within a few years. And as you can imagine, that doesn't work out well for anybody. We read about an organization in California called The Last Mile. It's working to reduce this recidivism rate by offering incarcerated individuals business and technology training. We're joined now by one of the founders of this program, Chris Redlitz. Chris, before we dig into The Last Mile, tell us a bit about your background. Sure. Uh, I live in San Francisco, and I run a venture capital firm called Transmedia Capital. I've been in the Bay Area for the last 25 years working in technology, running technology companies, investing in technology companies. So been here from sort of the inception of commercialization of the web, sort of from the mid-90s all the way through today. So uh, that's really my background, and, and that is and are some of the things that I've I have leveraged along with my wife, Beverly Parenti, we've leveraged those relationships um, and sort of that support to to launch the last mile. And that's that's really helped us sort of support and grow it as it is today. Indeed. Let's talk a little bit about the prison population in America, because the numbers are staggering. We have two point three million people incarcerated in the United States, a population that's grown 700 percent since the 1970s and at a staggering cost of $48 billion. And mm-hmm. talk about that number and what that meant to you, because I'm sure you bumped across similar numbers. And what led to you wanting to do this? Was there a private moment? Was there a philosophical moment? Was there a policy moment? Or was there an intersection of all three? You know, before I got involved in this, I really had no um, really awareness about what the extent of the criminal justice issues were in mass incarceration in in the country. I was actually invited into San Quentin State Prison, which is uh, just north of San Francisco, to do a talk to a group of men about business and entrepreneurship uh, as a favor to a friend because she knew that I ran a venture firm. She knew that I had some some understanding of business. And many of the men inside San Quentin had approached her saying, I have all these questions, but I have no one to talk to. So she invited me in one night. Frankly, I was kind of resistant to go in and reluctant to do it, but she was persistent and I relented and went inside one evening. And my expectation at that point was, I'm going to go in, I'm going to talk about what I do. They're not going to understand what I do. They're going to give me sort of blank stares and I'll walk out and that'll be it. And what happened was just the opposite. What was really scheduled as about a 30 minute talk turned into a whole evening discussion because this pack group um, it was about 50 guys in this room and they just started asking questions. Guys had a business plans and, and I was just sort of dumbfounded by their desire and their interest in, in really creating a better life after they served their time. So that was the moment that really struck me. And then I went back to Beverly, my wife and said, you know, this is incredible. What I saw, she and I have worked together over the last 20 years and I knew that I had to, you know, sort of pull her into this as well. 
So we both did our research and we saw the recidivism rates in California at the time, over 60%. The cost of incarceration for one specific person just to house was over at the time $50,000 a year. And then the numbers that you had talked about, the the number of people incarcerated in, in in the United States, over 2 million. And and those numbers started to really resonate. And we realized that we had some resources. We had a network. If we could just help a few of these guys that I met that night, um, that would be helpful. So uh, we created initially an entrepreneurship type of program that we'd go in and we'd start to teach them about what it is to start your business. And she and I went in the first year after we got our program approved just in San Quentin. And we went in two nights a week for 40 straight weeks to teach this program. And frankly, we kind of made it up as we went along. But what came out the other side were men who presented their ideas in a, in a demo day that we actually did inside San Quentin. And their presentations, there were uh, six guys that presented. I invited some of my venture capital friends into the prison to, to hear these presentations. And they were extraordinary. So that was really sort of the moment that made us realize that there was an impact and there was desire. And, and then people started saying, how can I help? So we started to build that volunteer base. And, you know, today, you know, we have a whole team and we're growing across the country and it's really exploded. But that was really the first moment for us. And stunning. And as, as so often happens, you know, you start down one path thinking one thing is going to happen and you you stumble upon demand. And there was tremendous demand and moreover, tremendous talent that I don't think it sounds like even you expected, did you, Chris? No, I didn't expect. I mean, the talent behind the walls is pretty amazing. You know, there are a lot of people who, you know, we talk about giving second chances. There's a lot of men and women that are in our program today that never even really had a first chance. You know, you talk about some of the folks that grew up in broken families. You know, parents were either on drugs, dealing drugs, you know, in gang-related environments where they really didn't have a choice. You give them tools and they just exceed expectations. That happened almost every time. You know, I mean, we've got a guy, Jason Jones, who was in foster care when he was eight years old, joined a gang when he was 11 years old, served 14 years in prison, nearly 14 years in prison. He got out this year and he works for a technology company in San Francisco as a software engineer. What are the chances of that? But you see that you give people opportunities and they really take them and run with them. And that's really what's happened in the program. Indeed. And the God-given talents of people are distributed equally, but fathers aren't distributed equally. And good schools and opportunities aren't distributed equally. And we all know that if we have any sense about ourselves. By the way, Chris, we've done a bunch of stories on the revolution that's happening in Georgia and Texas on prison reform uh, led a lot by evangelical Christians, believe it or not, because they're the ones yep. doing the mission work in the prisons and going, this kid shouldn't be in jail. He's he's yep. productive. He's smart. What are we doing here? And enough people led that chorus. Let's talk about the coding and, and, and the actual skill sets you're giving, because it's one thing to teach people how to be entrepreneurs, but that's not for yep. everybody. The skill set you're giving folks and the demand for the skills that you're supplying, talk about that. Well, yeah. So when we started the entrepreneurship program, we did that for four years and, you know, the results were great. But to your point, soft skills aren't specifically hireable skills for a job. Um, they can apply to a job, but coding is a specific skill that you can be hired for. And this was not an easy task to go to Sacramento 
where Corrections is located and present your idea of we want to teach software engineering inside prison, realizing that they cannot have direct access to the internet. And there's was some trepidation about giving, you know, these, we started San Quentin. So these guys, computers and technology and like, it was a little scary for, I think everyone involved that had to give that approval. So it took a while to get people on the same page. But once we did, we launched this program in 2014 in San Quentin initially. We had to create sort of a simulated environment where they could really learn and have the same tools that do on the outside. And it really resonated. You took people that had zero experience. I mean, there were people that were incarcerated for 15, 20 years who had never seen the internet or becoming software engineers, and they have. And we've had multiple people who have gone through the program, graduated from that with zero experience, and now working as software engineers. So it really resonated. And to your point, today, there is a huge demand for people in this particular sector. You know, there's a number that floats around that within, uh, by 2020, there'll be a million unfilled software engineering jobs in this country. So there are opportunities if you can prepare people with the right skill. And this is really one area where people are less concerned about your history and more concerned about if you can do the job. And also with the skill, you can work remotely. So you don't necessarily have to be in that particular city or state or town to do work for tech companies. So there are a lot of advantages around teaching the skill, and it's really resonated. And this is the program that we are actually taking across the country today. Indeed, and you've got prisoners teaching other prisoners right now as well, which is just remarkable because there's nothing better you can do with a young man or a young lady than to have them be late leaders. They they just act differently once they're mentors and not just mentees. That's so true. I mean, it's you just see people blossom. And think about it, in prison, the idea of trust, transparency, and vulnerability are all not necessarily things that are pervasive in prison. Those are all things that are important for us, especially when people get out, being very transparent about your background and what you want to do. So the leadership skills that people inside now, after they go the pro through the program, they become mentors, and you just see them really evolve as leaders. And I, and I think to your point, it's really important as they get out in the world that they can have leadership roles as well. And when we come back, we'll continue with Chris Redlitz, the man who founded The Last Mile and is changing lives in prisons across America. Turn to our American stories and continue with Chris Redlitz, the founder of The Last Mile, a program that teaches coding, technology, leadership, and entrepreneurial skills to men and women who are currently incarcerated so they can make a better life for themselves when they leave jail. You know, Chris, my family has some experience with this. I have a nephew who's been in and out of prison several times, and he's a good young man who's made some bad choices, and he's paid the price for those choices. He's excited about getting out because he's going to have this HVAC license that he has in his head. He wants to do air conditioning and, and work on homes, and, and he's got his spiritual life on, in order, and we're hoping for the best for this young man. And there are so many roadblocks set up for him, Chris, as he gets out. 
There's the probation, which of course we need. And there are all the fines that he has to keep paying. And it's just so hard for so many of these guys and gals to reintegrate into society. And by the way, for all of those listening, we're not talking here about the 5 or 10% who just need to stay behind bars because they're just a danger and a menace to society. We're talking about the 90%, Chris, who sooner or later, they're going to get out. Well, sure. And, and we're not saying people shouldn't serve time. Believe me, there are a lot of people that serve time that should be there, and some people shouldn't get out. But the vast majority will get out. And what we're saying is we want to create tools and pathways for them to be successful. So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of challenges, and it really is state by state because each state has different laws and regulations, especially in reentry. But, you know, one thing that is pretty consistent are this really reluctance for companies to hire formerly incarcerated individuals just because of that stigma. And, you know, there are a lot of other things that are challenging. Obviously, when you get out, you really need a job, a place to live. You need, you know, some sort of emotional support. And you need a network of peers. So part of what we're doing is all the uh, TLM alumni are connected so that they have this peer support group, which is really important. I mean, to date, we have zero recidivism within our program over the last nine years. I, I really believe that this peer support is highly contributed to that success because it's not about just if I recidivate. It's if I do, I'm going to let down all those people in my community. So I think that's really important, but just little things that, you know, we take for granted. Like when you come out, you have to go get an ID. You can't do that before, right? So you have to go and get an ID. You have to really sort of navigate on your own. I mean, when you are released from prison in California, you get $200 and in some cases a bus ticket. That's it. And if there's no one waiting for you at the gate, and I'm just giving an example of San Quentin, you have to have someone receive you at the gate. If no one's at the gate, they take you to the bus station and they drop you off. Can you imagine being in prison for 10, 15, 20 years and getting dropped off at a bus station with $200 and expect success? That's just, you know, that's why the recidivism rates are so high. It's got to be actually absolutely daunting and frightening the moment that happens for someone. Yeah, you're free, but free to do what and with whom? It's got to be just so daunting. It is, and that's why it's so important. And we're building out our reentry program even more extensively today. But those first 60, 90, 120 days are so critically important for someone to have success that if they don't have family, if they don't have a job, if they don't have a place to live, those are all components that are really important. And also today with technology, I mean, really, we're so reliant on our mobile devices that You know, we give all of our graduates access to technology and they need to have a phone and they need to have computers and they need to have those type of things. And those are things, obviously, we teach them inside, but it's different when you get outside and you really have that in your hand. So those are things that, you know, weren't issues 15 years ago. They're issues today about really being comfortable with technology as well, because that's how all of us navigate today. Chris, I want to read something from USA Today, and that's where we discovered the last mile and learned about the amazing work you're doing. Quote, One code buster is Thalia Ruiz, 20, from San Jose, who said she abused drugs and alcohol while gangbanging. Ruiz said the last mile set her on a new path. Quote, I just felt like I had to show them I can get out, I can rehabilitate, 
and be a better person, she said. I'm not going to get out and keep doing what I was doing because I'm just going to end up in the same place that I started, and that's not where I want to be. And by the way, our church visits prisons throughout Mississippi, and I hear almost these exact words over and over again, and I believe almost everybody tells me what they're telling me believes it. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I, you know, it comes back to something you said earlier about hope. What, what we recognized early on that we were providing some hope, and many people inside have no hope. So that's really the sort of the starting point of providing hope. And also, there's this physical but also perceived ceiling of what I can do. And it was important for us to sort of break through that ceiling of what's possible. And there was nothing more powerful than one of our graduates going back into prison, especially a prison they used to live in, with a coat and tie and a job and talking about it's really possible. We do that a lot now with our graduates, go back inside, whether it's prison they used to be in or another prison, say it is possible because they can listen to me or they can listen to Beverly. But for them to listen to somebody who's actually been through it is really, really powerful. And that does instill hope across the country. And this is very constructive hope. I mean, it's one thing to have the hope that, look, I'm a, I'm a Christian, so I always want to tell people they're children of God. For people who aren't Christians or for whomever else you're trying to counsel, the word hope is nice, but you're giving them specific, tangible skill sets that give them real self-esteem, something they may have never had in their entire lives. Well, that's true. We have placed our graduates throughout a variety of companies, but uh, what is the consistent response we get from coworkers or CEOs of companies that we place them is these men and women, their work ethic is unparalleled because more than a job, they, this is a chance to really uh, obviously have a restart, but also set an example. So their work ethic is there are many, they're the first one there and the last one to leave type of thing. And that's really important to make people realize that these folks, not only do they have a skill, but their work ethic is is such that they set a model example for other employees. Where do you see the last mile, you know, 10 years from now? And it's something tells me for all the work you've done in the private sector, that this this is where and what you want your legacy to be. Talk about that. Everyone in the program signs an oath of commitment. And basically that says that I'm going to represent the last mile. And if I do anything that is negative to the program, I could be dismissed from it because citizenship is one of the most important things for us. You cannot apply to be part of the last mile program while you're in prison if you've had an infraction two years prior. So people have to be good citizens for a while. If they have an infraction while they're inside, they're dismissed from the program. So the accountability is high. When we started this, Beverly and I were the first to sign that oath basically saying we're in this for life. So it's a life commitment for both of us. And that's sort of translated for our whole organization today. As we speak, we're in 14 classrooms now in California, Indiana, uh, Kansas, and just opening in, in Oklahoma. Our goal within the next five years is to be in 50 classrooms. I think we'll end up this year at at least 20. We want this to be a national program. We want this to be a program where the last mile, you know, that brand is recognized by employers, that there is quality people that come out of that program. And uh, it's really important for us to, as we have done, to create a public-private partnership 
many of our funding comes from outside of state entities for uh, private foundations or companies that are supporting this. And we want to engage the business community in every area that we are in. So it's not only opening facilities across the country, but engaging businesses as well to help support this and grow it as it's grown so far. And we've been talking to Chris Redlitz, and he's the founder of The Last Mile. And if you want to give to this great and worthy cause, go to thelastmile.org, thelastmile.org. Zero recidivism rates, folks. It doesn't get lower than that, does it? We're a nation that believes in second chances, Chris said. And many of these people we meet in prisons never really got a first chance. This is Lee Habib, Chris Redlett's story. So many inmates and families of inmates' stories, too, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when looking back through animation history, there are very few cartoons with as devoted a following as Scooby-Doo in all of our history stories. And that's everything from the arts to sports and, well, of course, history history. All of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Here's Greg Hengler with the rest of the story. Nineteen sixty-nine, America was approaching its fourteenth year fighting in Vietnam. A serial killer calling himself the Zodiac terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area with cryptic letters. Actress Sharon Tate and four others were brutally murdered at the hands of Charles Manson and his counterculture family of so-called flower children. With all this happening, the song topping the charts was this. Sugar Sugar was originally recorded by the fictional garage band The Archies, spawned from the cartoon series The Archies, which itself was based on the long-running comic book series. This version reached number one in the U.S. on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1969 and remained there for four weeks. It was the tail end of animation's golden age and the early years of television animation in particular. Parent advocacy groups like the now-defunct Action for Children's Television were pressuring television networks to drop violent action-adventure Saturday morning cartoons like The Herculoids. Fred Silverman, the head executive in charge of children's animation at CBS, sought new programming that would keep his Saturday morning block afloat while simultaneously keeping parental watchdogs off his back. The solution was to hopefully expand upon the massive success CBS found with the Archie show. So, Silverman contacted William Hanna and Joseph Barbera to develop a show in the Archie mold. 
Hanna-Barbera Productions were early pioneers in TV animation, having created shows like Tom and Jerry, Yogi Bear, The Smurfs, The Jetsons, and America's first primetime animated series, The Flintstones. Just keep your eye on the ball, Bonnie boy. (laughs) The new Archie style show was initially called House of Mystery that would feature a teenage rock band and would solve mysteries in between gigs. Iwao Takamoto, an animation vet who got his start at Disney in the 40s, was assigned as designer of the project. From here, the series took shape as Mysteries 5. Much like the Archies, the band was also joined by a dog named Too Much, who played the bongos. Designer Takamoto, who had previously designed Astro from the Jetsons, took particular care in crafting Too Much by consulting one of his workmates a breeder of Great Danes. But after studying these prize-winning Great Danes, Takamoto ignored their signature characteristics, making too much bow-legged, with a sloped back and a double chin. When the show was finally pitched to CBS, the band was phased out, the name of the leader of the group Ronnie was changed to Fred after a subtle suggestion from Fred Silverman, an easily frightened and always hungry talking dog too much was renamed Scooby-Doo. Inspiration for his new name came while Fred Silverman listened to Sinatra's Strangers in the Night on a cross-country flight. CBS ordered 17 episodes and the show was introduced to generations of children on September 13, 1969 as Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Just a few weeks before Sesame Street premiered. What's remarkable about Scoob's first episode is that it established everything that the franchise would be known for, from the plot structure to the visuals, making each episode feel unique yet familiar by inserting different monsters, settings, gags, etc. Let's take a deep dive into this mystery, getting some help from the gang who created the show. Jinkies! Jeepers! Come on, gang! Let's split up and look for more clues. Quick, do something, Scoob. (laughs) Here's the voice of Scooby-Doo, Don Messick. Well, in many cases, there are much younger children who don't understand that there are real people behind the character voices. And so usually they're kind of excited to, to learn that that's how the magic comes about. Here's animation historian Mark Evaner. Don Messick did the voice of Scooby-Doo originated, and Don was just brilliant at breathing life into that character. Here's the voice of the snack-loving beatnik Shaggy, legendary disc jockey Casey Kasem. Well, I think Don got into the psyche of an animal that was very much like Scooby-Doo. That dog was alive, and it was was a being, a human being. And he just invested that character with so much personality and made him so funny that it's impossible not to love him. Do I get a Scooby Snack? We'll look for one after we're off the camera here. Uh, okay. <laughs> Scooby Dooby Doo. I just got the idea for a trap that'll solve this mystery. Listen. Here's the voice of the confident all American ascot wearing Fred, Frank Welker. I would have to describe Fred as being uh, 
the guy in the group who has a license. And that's why the other kids have him around, so he can drive the mystery machine. Hang on, gang! The way that I got the part for Freddy, I was doing a stand-up routine, and within this routine, I did like a dog and cat fight, a lot of, you know, and this executive said, you know, we're doing a show called Scooby-Doo, and there's a dog, why don't you come in and audition for Scooby-Doo? And I said, great. So I went over there and I got the script and I saw Shaggy. This is me, funny character. You know, and I'm always playing the straight guys. And so I sit down and meet Casey and he's just fantastic. I said, well, what part are you reading for? And he says, oh, I'm reading for Shaggy and I want to read for Freddy. Character I wanted to do was Fred. And so they said, no, we, we'd like you to read the, the other character, Shaggy. I said, oh, okay, well, uh, what is it you want? And uh, he said, well, come up with something. And uh, what I came up with was, Scoobo, buddy, old friend, old pal, it's me. <laughs> Your friend Shaggy. <laughs> like what? My favorite. A double, triple decker sardine and marshmallow fudge sandwich. Open the mouth between the gums. Look out, stomach. Here it comes. They called me back three times. And the third time, apparently, they, they, uh, they saw what they liked. And so they, they hired me. Well, gang, I guess that wraps up another mystery. Here's the voice of the bespeckled bookish Velma, Nicole Jaffe. My glasses! I can't see without my glasses! It was not my real voice, but it wasn't that far away. Velma lisps, I lisp. Velma has kind of a slightly kooky voice. I guess my voice is slightly kooky. I think my character set a good example for girls. They didn't have to follow around. They could lead. They could have the ideas. That's what I always liked about my character. Here's the voice of the attractive, accident-prone Daphne, Heather North. That's your cue, Daph. Right. Oh, no. My finger's stuck in the keys. I can't work the trick. Danger-prone Daphne did it again. Danger-prone Daphne. Yeah. Wait! Help me! The girl that had played Daphne for a short period of time had left and gone to New York to get married. Nicole Jaffe, David, was my roommate and said, get in here. They're looking for Daphne. You can do Daphne. Jeepers! I'm doing Velma. We could, we could do this together. This would be great fun. And I auditioned and got the part. And that was my first, really my first job as an agent, was getting her this. Together, these characters formed Mystery Inc and embarked on countless mysteries to seek out the truth in their van dubbed The Mystery Machine. Predictably, the monsters always turned out to be humans in disguise. And I'd have done it too, if you kids hadn't come along. And contrary to popular belief, the phrase meddling kids is never mentioned until episode 20 during season two. And it would have been mine if it hadn't been to those meddling kids. But even then, it was not muttered with much consistency only being said twice in the original series. After season one of Scooby-Doo, the series was a rating smash hit. Up to 65% of the Saturday morning audience was tuning in to Scooby-Doo, and its popularity hasn't slowed down to this day. There have been many spin-offs, blockbuster movies, and merchandising, but the heart of the characters has remained. And thanks to reruns, a new generation of kids get to enjoy Scoob in the game as they solve their mysteries. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Scooby 
And great job as always, Greg. And that happens to be Greg's favorite cartoon. And he still loves it. And we all love our favorites. Scooby-Doo's story here on Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, always remember that because of our Constitution and because of the patent right, intellectual property is possible in this great country for artists to have their rights secured in ideas like Scooby-Doo, Straight to Bob Dylan, our greatest movies, all of our arts and culture, straight from our Constitution. This is Our American Stories. If we can count on you, Scooby-Doo, I know we'll catch that villain. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. must be wooed with all of one's might and every bit of effort that we have. And each day there's a new encounter, each week is a new challenge. And all of the display and all of the noise and all of the glamour and all of the color and all of the excitement and all of the rings and all of the money, these are the things that really linger only in the memory. But the spirit, the will to excel, the will to win, these are the things that endure. And you're listening to the late Vince Lombardi, and we celebrate great American iconic figures, and there was no bigger one in the mid to late 20th century than Vince Lombardi. He affected everything, and we love talking to great writers, and we're going to talk right now with David Moranis, who wrote the book on Vince Lombardi, When Pride Still Mattered. Go to Amazon, pick it up. You will not put it down. It tells the story not just about a man, but a place and a time. David's the associate editor of the Washington Post. His latest book is Once in a Great City, a Detroit story about 1963, a time and a place and a great American city. And David, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Let's start in the beginning. Vince Lombardi's dad. What did he, <laughs> what did he do for a living? And describe the world oh, man. that young Vince, Vince grew up in. Lombardi's father, Harry, was a butcher. The family lived uh, in Sheepshead Bay uh, in Brooklyn. Harry would commute over to the lower west side of Manhattan where he had a butcher shop. One of his nicknames was Old 5x5, five five, which described about how he looked. He was short and squat and very strong and sort of uh, inculcated into his sons that there was no such thing as pain. Uh, he was tattooed, uh, you know, before his time. I guess, you know, he'd fit in with the modern-day athlete in that sense. Uh, but my favorite tattoos were on his knuckles. On one uh, hand, his knuckles spelled W-O-R-K, work. And on the other hand, the knuckles spelled play, P-L-A-Y. And that, too, sort of reflected some part of his son's mythology. Indeed. And, and, and here's a quote from you. The trinity of Vince Lombardi's early life was religion, family, and sports. It would be true for his entire life, wouldn't it be, David? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, in various orders, but he was, he was a very religious man, Catholic family, Italian Catholics. At one point, Vince himself thought he was going to be a priest, and he always sort of 
carried that inside him for the rest of his life, and he was trained at, at Fordham by the Jesuits, and the Jesuit philosophy was a very important part of his coaching philosophy. Um, but family was, was really everything. His mother's family were the Izzos, and she was one of 13 Izzo kids. And that, with you know, all kinds of uh, cousins and uncles and aunts, and, and that family really is the environment that Vince Lombardi grew up in something that he never was able to recreate with his own nuclear family, as we'll talk about, but but was able to recreate with his team, the Green Bay Packers. And by the way, 13 kids, people are listening like shocked, right, David? But Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic, yeah. and just lots of families, 8, 10, 12, was, well, it was pretty normal, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, it was not out of the ordinary for an Irish Catholic or, or Italian Catholic family of that era. Uh, the Izzos were pretty well renowned in Sheepshead Bay because there were there were so many of them, and they they had uh, various uh, professions um, in that place. But no, it was not it was not shocking that there would be thirteen of them. Now you wrote, "quote The church was not some distant institution to be visited once a week, but part of the rhythm of daily life." Talk about that. Vince Lombardi, as an adult, went to mass every morning. When he lived, uh, you know, wherever he lived, at, at Fordham as a student, uh, he was trained by the Jesuits. Um, then he was a, a teacher and coach at St. Cecilia High School in New Jersey, um, where he his best friends were the were the fathers there and the nuns. Um, when he was at Green Bay, uh, he went to mass every morning at St. Willibrod's in Green Bay, which was a pretty heavily Catholic place and and finally uh, I love this story late you know late, his last move in his career was to Washington DC he of course wanted to go to mass every morning but the mass that he wanted to attend was held at something like 9 9:30 or 10 and he wanted to get to work before then so he literally knocked on the door of the priest and told him to move his mass up so that somebody could get to work. <laughs> that one didn't work. Yeah. Uh, he couldn't tell God what to do, but he could tell everybody else. That's right. In the end, there was a part of me that, as I read your book, he, he almost wanted to submit to something higher than him. That was about the only place in his life where that was true, yes. But I, I think that uh, people have various levels of commitment to faith and religion, and I think with Vince Lombardi, it was authentic and deep, and he did need that. Uh, he also, it should be said that he went to Mass every day because he knew he was a flawed human being. Yep. And he knew that he sometimes had anger management problems. Um, not that he was violent, but just that he, he except, you know, with his words. Um, and he wanted to try to control that, and he regretted it. And that was one of the reasons he, he went to Mass to sort of, for penance in that sense. Now let me hit you with another quote, and this is a Lombardi quote in your book. From the first contact on football fascinated me. Contact, controlled violence, a game where the mission was to hit someone harder, punish him, knees up, elbows out, challenge your body, mind, and spirit, exhaust yourself, and seek redemption through fatigue. Such were the rewards an altar boy found in his favorite game. David, suffering, pain, redemption. It sounds like football and religion had intertwined. Yeah, they certainly were with Vince Lombardi. Uh, There's one great uh, irony or paradox to that, which is that Lombardi was kind of a wimp. (laughs) He had a very low pain threshold himself. He had a much higher pain threshold for For other people. 
<laughs> but, but um, you know, his, even the trainers would talk about how Lombardi would get sidelined with a hangnail. And at Fordham, he was often disabled with one injury or another. I mean, he was a tough human being. He had a strong spirit. But as I'm right, and I believe this is true with many coaches and politicians and leaders in general, they see their own weaknesses and understand them and try to eliminate them in others, which they can't eliminate in themselves. So that the whole notion of fatigue, though, and work, giving your hardest and leaving it all on the field is something that Lombardi did personally and that he truly believed in, the re- reward of that hard work, which is part of the Jesuit philosophy. And when we come back, more about the impact of that Jesuit philosophy on the life of Vince Lombardi. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with David Moranis, author of When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. And we love to do deep dives on great books of the last 25 years. This is one of the best and about one of the great subjects. And David, people would never believe it. But once upon a time, New York City was a real college football power. We had Columbia and NYU. And then there was Fordham, where young Vince decided to go play football. Talk about the role of those Fordham Jesuits in the formation of Vince's character and life. Well, I think that you can trace everything about Lombardi's coaching philosophy back to the Jesuits. The key one, in my mind, is the notion of freedom through discipline, which I think explains Lombardi better than anything else, and is a Jesuit notion, which is that only through the hard work and repetition and commitment that comprises discipline can you eventually develop the freedom um, in your life. Um, you know, for the Jesuits, it was free will. For Lombardi, um, if you transferred it to his football teams, it was that once they learned, they disciplined themselves through that hard work to understand what they were doing, it slowed the game down for them and made them um, have a leg up on all of their opponents. And that was the freedom that his hard work gave to his players. It's so true. I'm going to read again from the book. All the detailed preparations resulted not in a mass of confusing statistics and plans, but in the opposite, paring away the extraneous, reducing and refining until all that was left was what was needed for that game against the team. Exactly your point there, David. Yeah, and I think that um, along with the Jesuits, the other um, major philosophy that affected Lombardi was from West Point, where he was an assistant coach under the great coach Red Blake who really had that same philosophy of making things simple by being a good teacher. It doesn't mean that, that things are are dumbed down for, for uh, the players, but just that there's so much extraneous stuff that teachers put into something, and the ability to, to make it understandable to every player um, and to simplify something until it has a more powerful effect is something he also learned from Red Blake. Indeed. In fact, you wrote, quote, in many ways, the philosophy at West Point was similar to the way of life 
that Lombardi had learned earlier at Fordham under the Jesuits. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it was a perfect uh, storm. You know, our, our leaders born or made, um, I think there's a combination of the two, but I think that, that the making of Vince Lombardi with the ingredients he already had uh, came from the Jesuits and, and West Point in a way that, that made him unique. Now, his first job out of Fordham, his first coaching job, was in a little hamlet in northern New Jersey called Englewood. I grew up not far from there. Uh-huh. And St. Cecilia's High School, I'm going to quote again from the book, when he took the job at Saints, Lombardi said later, his frame of mind was that he wanted to be a teacher more than a coach. And for some people who really knew him, and you did as you studied him, that was true all the way through, wasn't it? Oh, totally. Yes, he was, he was a teacher coach. Everything that helped him with the Green Bay Packers was refined first at Little St. Cecilia. He, he taught a lot of different classes, including chemistry. And again, he, he, what he tried to do was make it, he wouldn't go on in the coursework until every kid in the class understood it. Um, and he had a, that ability to make complicated things seem understandable, comprehensible. So that, you know, later when he first got to the Green Bay Packers, I, Bart Starr, the quarterback, spent one hour with Vince Lombardi and rushed to a telephone to call his wife to say that he'd never experienced anything like this and they were going to start winning because of the way that Lombardi, who was a lineman, by the way, could explain what it was like to be a quarterback. You know, this is extraordinary. We're going to play the clip from Bart Starr in one second. But what's interesting, in Lombardi, when Lombardi, and we're just jumping ahead of the story, we'll return back to St. Cecilia's, sure. When, when Lombardi gets to, to Green Bay, the team had been 1-10 the year before. 1-10. <laughs> so he's now meeting the players. He gives this pep talk. And within an hour, as you said, here's Bart Starr talking about that. I'll always remember our first meeting with him. It was dynamite. And uh, I called my wife, Cherry, and I said, Honey, we're going to begin to win. That's all <laughs> I said to her. Honey, we're going to begin to win. In his very first meeting, you could see how well prepared he was and then how he approached what he was teaching at that session that day. Uh, you, could, you could sense an outstanding teacher and uh, builder that he was, and that's exactly what we were. He just brought us right up quickly. It's extraordinary. Eight years he spent at St. Cecilia yeah. doing just that. Eight years, David. That really <clears throat> mattered, didn't it? In a couple of ways. One is the... The, uh, that he was ready when he finally got his chance. He, you know, he'd already developed the skills that, that were needed for, for when, he, when he finally got his break. Secondly, in another way, all of that time, eight years at St. Cecilia's and then, and then several other assistant coaching jobs, you know, 20 years basically in the, in the wilderness before he got his break, all made it so that he had this enormous overriding will to succeed when he finally did get his chance. West Point is the next gig. Talk about this man, Red Blake, because we all need mentors in life, and sometimes we're just lucky enough to stumble on one. Well, Blake was a superior football coach. He had great organizational skills. He also was a terrific teacher. And his motto was, you have to pay the price, which was sort of a, you know, a continuation of the Jesuit motto of freedom through discipline and the notion that you get out of life what you put into it. 
and it was part of the learning tree for, for Vince Lombardi. And, and what's interesting is this is back when West Point, and this is, again, hard to believe, was a national powerhouse in football, oh, championship teams. So. Yeah, they when, when Lombardi got there, they'd come through a couple of amazing seasons where they were the number one team in the country. One of the other threads of my book, however, is the fallacy of the innocent past, where you know, we're always longing for something golden in the past and, and tend to romanticize it for that reason. There are many valid reasons to do that, but you can't look, look at it through rose-colored glasses. So you know, during Lombardi's time at West Point, there was a cheating scandal among, among the uh, football players. You know, human nature doesn't really change the the culture around it does, but but the temptations of life are are there. You know, in every generation, and yep. so at West Point, it was you know a cheating scandal that almost brought Red Blake to his knees. They had an amazing recovery, but it was a very difficult couple of years. And there's an honor code there, so in a place yeah. like West Point, it's even just it's worse than Big State University, a cheating scandal. Um. Right. I mean, it, yes, it's it's sort of more uh, discombobulating that that those young men would would be involved in that. It wasn't the first time, and it wasn't the last time, though, that one of the academies had a scandal like that, and partly because of the pressures of the honor codes. You bet, and that they're young men in a very tough circumstance, and that nothing right. changes there. One scene in the book really stood out for me, David. It was of Lombardi taking game film from the West Point game <laughs> and bringing it to New York City for an yes. important graduate who lived in the Waldorf Astoria. Who was that graduate? That was uh, General Douglas MacArthur, who by that time was back from his controversial uh, period as a, as a gen- Army general, but still revered West Point. He'd once been the superintendent at West Point. He and Red Blake were very close. And so one of of assistant coach Lombardi's assignments was to go down to um, New York and get the film developed and stop off at MacArthur's penthouse suite in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and show him the game films. Um, MacArthur was always following in great detail the starting lineups of the West Point of the Army football team, their schedule, um, their preseason drills. He wanted to know everything about every player on that team. And one of so Lombardi got to spend time with him, uh, showing him game film uh, during the seasons. That had to be a real learning uh, experience for him at a minimum. Lombardi yeah. and MacArthur, by the way, both believed, David, in the value of competitive sports to shape and mold men's character. Talk about that. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, um, MacArthur was very much into the notion that, that you know, mind and body uh, went together and that sports were essential to to building character. Um, you know, that, that that's a debatable point. Um, some people argue that sports don't make character but reveal it. And, uh, you know, I think it's always an interesting uh, way to look at it. But but for MacArthur, sports was, was really a central part of, of what he saw as the mission of West Point. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Moranis, the book When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, And I just can't get out of my head what that must have been like for a young coach Lombardi, an assistant coach, to bring game film to General Douglas MacArthur. I would have wet myself. I would have peed in my pants. When we come back, more of the life story of Vince Lombardi with one of the best writers in this country, author David Moranis. (laughs) 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're talking to David Moranis, author of When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. And Vince's next job, he was the assistant coach for Wellington Mara's New York Giants. He's in the big leagues now, David. He was the offensive coach, and Tom Landry, who would go on to fame as a coach of the Dallas Cowboys, he was the assistant coach in charge of the defense. Talk about that. You could say that that was the best combination of of uh, assistant coaches in NFL history. So much so that the head coach, Jim Lee Howell, they used to joke that his only main assignment was to make sure the footballs had enough air in them. <laughs> and then he turned everything over to uh, Landry and Lombardi, who were um, yin and yang, uh, just opposites of personality and coaching styles. Um, Landry was cool, methodical, almost uh, almost an automaton in the way he wanted his players to, to act and the way he coached. And Lombardi was um, much more emotional, uh, much more, uh, uh, you know, high, high and low in terms of how he would deal with the players. Uh, just complete opposites. Indeed. And by the way, he had to learn something new. He had to adapt Lombardi. These were grown men. Guys like Charlie Connolly had served in war. Talk about how Lombardi adapted from teaching young people to teaching grown men. Well, you're right. Uh, You know, his first uh, training camp with the Giants, um, the the offensive players really didn't uh, take to him at first. Frank Gifford, uh, the great halfback, and Charlie Connolly, the old quarterback, they thought he was sort of amateurish and, you know, trying to sort of a rah-rah college guy. So it took him a while to adjust to the pro style. But that's a very important point about Lombardi, which many people don't quite understand. He has the reputation of sort of my way or the highway being inflexible. He wasn't like that at all, really. He was very disciplined and tough, but he was also a master psychologist who who would study his players and figure out how to get the best out of all of them and learn and change and adapt. And that's exactly what he started doing when he became an assistant coach at the Giants. And all teachers in the end have to do that because culture changes, people yep. change, and you just can't, te- te- you can't treat people as robots. They're people. That's exactly right. And that's why when people ask me whether Lombardi could succeed today, I say yes. Um, he he would he would learn how to get the best out of players today, just as he did in his era, and he would adapt to that without changing his fundamental philosophy. And the players would adapt to him because they realized that he had their interests at heart and that he would help them win. Indeed, let's talk about the professional football experience then, because it's not today. Baseball, boxing, even horse racing got more coverage in newspapers. Pay was poor. In your book, you talk about how players barely got paid for preseason games, and many teams had no compensation plans for injured players. But Lombardi was lucky to come into the league just as all of that was beginning to change, David, and it didn't hurt that he was in a big media market like New York. No, it didn't, and it didn't hurt that um, that the game had him as well. And it sort of was a nice uh, synergy between the rise of professional football and the rise of Vince Lombardi. So everything that he learned in New York by the time he got to Green Bay, football, the NFL was finally coming out from being a second-class sport to being the dominant sport that it would later become. 
and and the sport used Lombardi, and Lombardi used him in that rise. Indeed, and so he ends up in a little hamlet in the Midwest called Green Bay, and his poor wife, I mean, New York City, and Ala- it might as well have been Alaska that he was going to as far as his wife and family were concerned. We haven't talked much about this thing called the marriage, yeah. and the wife had drinking problems. Uh, Vince wasn't exactly a model husband in terms of how he talked to his wife, treated his wife, and he was never there. Talk about that relationship and what the wife did, because she really tried to keep Vince in New York. Yeah, well, you know, it's a it's a difficult, it's a love story, but a very difficult and human and problematic one. Marie was from New Jersey. She loved the East Coast. She liked uh, the clothing stores in, in Manhattan and just the whole lifestyle there. And and for her to go to, to Little Green Bay was just a utter culture shock. There was a Broadway play that was made out of my book, and the character that steals the show in the play is Marie Lombardi, played by the great actress Judith Light. The scene of them driving west for the first time and rounding Chicago and then running into a snowstorm. It, it was amazing to see Judith Light portray Marie in that scene where she sees nothing but white ahead of her and, and what that sort of represented to her. Vince Lombardi was much better at creating a sense of family out of his football team than he was out of his nuclear family. His wife had um, a paradoxical situation where she loved being Vince Lombardi's wife, and she grew to love football and and really understood him and the game by in the end quite well. And yet it was a very lonely experience because he, in a sense, was married to football as much as or more than her. And she did have a drinking problem, and um, there were several moments in their lives in Green Bay where things got pretty dicey. She was in the hospital once for for an overdose of uh, of drugs, you know, um, of pills. I'm sorry, not drugs. And uh, of course, the relationship with Vince Jr. was equally difficult. Imagine being carrying that name and that bird. There's a book in that, David, The Sons of Great Men. Maybe, maybe you'll. Uh, yeah, uh, I know. I, there really is. Yep. There's a great scene in your book where Lombardi, the new coach, gives his first impassioned speech to the Green Bay team <laughs> that had just lost 10 of 11 games. He told them they were going to be the New York Yankees of football. He told them that he would relentlessly pursue victory and anyone who didn't like it was free to leave. After the speech, and I'm quoting from your book, there was silence. The room empties. Lombardi approaches veteran Max McGee. What did you think? Lombardi asked. Well, I'll tell you, you got their attention, coach, McGee replied. You know, I wasn't sure, Lombardi confided. Everybody could have just gotten up and walked out for all I knew. It showed a tremendous vulnerability in Lombardi and an honesty. And I think that is what really came out of this book for me. What a human being he was. Oh, absolutely. You know, you can try to create uh, a myth- mythological creature as a saint, um, but it's the it's the frailty and humanity of someone who then goes on, despite all of that, to achieve uh, success that makes Lombardi the more interesting uh, character. And he did have those vulnerabilities and those uncertainties, and they drove him as much as as his confidence that he was going to win. Indeed, and I love. There's a video. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's Lombardi on a on a in front of a chalkboard, and he's outlining the sweep. Oh yes, that's that's uh, iconic. Yeah, it's like a physics class. It's so intricate, and yet he mastered his team mastered this play, and it became well, it became the iconic play of the great American 
football team known as the Green Bay Packers. I love the, the story of the sweep as much as anything to describe Vince Lombardi because um, superficially um, it seems simplistic. You know, the other teams would have all of these fancy plays and, and, and the Packers had the power sweep, the Green Bay sweep, and other teams knew it was coming. So why did it succeed? It's because Lombardi taught it so well and so thoroughly and allowed freedom in the discipline of that sweep so that every player involved in that sweep, whether they're a blocker or the runner, knew about 10 or 20 variables that they could use on the sweep depending on how the defense was reacting. And they understood it so well that they were one step ahead of the defense on that play. And that was the freedom through discipline of, of, of Lombardi's philosophy, exemplified by one play that seemed simple, but actually was rendered simple in its complexity. And when we come back, more with David Moranis, his terrific book, When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. This is Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, give us your email address, and we will get you our five best stories each week in audio form and in text. You can read it. You can listen to it. That's ouramericannetwork.org. More after these messages with David Moranis and the life of Vince Lombardi. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with author David Moranis and his book, When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, and we love to cover these stories. This book was written almost two decades ago, but we cover the great iconic stories in this country and the writers who wrote the books, and for those who hadn't read this book, well, go to Amazon.com. It's still out there, folks, and you won't put it down if you read it, and David Lombardi had no room in the locker room for racism or in the city of Green Bay. Does that have anything to do with how he was treated as an Italian? He'd been called WAP, Guinea, Dago, and so many other bad names. He knew the sting of racism and racial prejudice. You know, it did certainly affect Lombardi. That, that, that's not to say that that was the only factor, because I think there are other Italians who were discriminated against or anybody, you can react one of two ways. You can then find somebody else to discriminate against yourself, yep. or you can take it as a learning lesson about, you know, that we're all uh, in the same boat. Lombardi took it that way, um, in the best possible way. When he got to Green Bay, you know, I think there were three blacks in the whole town, and one was the shoeshine man at the Northland Hotel, and the other two were Packers. Uh, he brought the first wave of of great black athletes to Green Bay. And one of the first things he did was go to all the taverns in Green Bay, or most of them, there's so many, and overwhelming, you know, there's a tavern on every block. Right. But he said, if I hear that you're discriminating against any of my players, you're off limits for all of them. And that had a pretty profound effect. And that was the sort of thing he did throughout his career. When they had preseason games in the South, 
uh, the first instance they were in New Orleans and the black players had to sleep somewhere else. He said, we'll never allow this again. And he would put the whole team up together at a army base instead of having to deal with this, with the Jim Crow South. Um, he was very strong on race and all of his black players from the day they first met him to the day he died, uh, revered him for that. Yeah, and the military, we all know this about the military. Long before there was integration talk, the first real cultural institution in America that brought the races together was the military, David. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, it was too late. It happened after World War II, basically. But but the military and sports, more than any other parts of American life, have become true meritocracies, at least on the playing field or on the, the field of battle. They did a lot, both of those institutions, to to break the racial barriers of this country. Let's talk about prayer. You said it was, quote, the essence of Lombardi's religious practice and the constant of his daily routine. Quote, his daily prayers were an effort to balance the tension between his will to succeed and his desire to be good. You know, it's quite something that he saw that in himself. He might have the appearance of not being the most self-reflective human being, so obsessed did he seem with with prevailing. But in fact, he did have that self-awareness, and it was the central part of his uh, faith, of his life of prayer, was to try to find the right balance. Even if he couldn't do it outside of the, the uh, church, he understood the problem that he was dealing with in his own frailty on that, and that was that was what he... Spent a lot of, you know, he didn't pray to win, he prayed to be a better person. And in your chapter, Trinity, his son talked about his dad, and I'm going to quote from the son, life was a struggle for my dad. He knew he wasn't perfect. He had a lot of habits that were far from perfect. His strengths were his weaknesses and vice versa. He fought it by taking that paradox to church. It went back to the Jesuits always and the struggle between the shadow self and the real self, your humanity and your divinity. He saw that struggle clear, my dad, in concrete terms. Wow, what a wise son, David. Isn't that something? I know. I felt blessed when I started this biography that Vince Lombardi's son was not perpetuating a mythological, sainted creature as a father, but had a clear-eyed vision of him, and it wasn't, he didn't hate his father, he loved his father, but he knew his father's flaws. And he had suffered because of that himself and spent a lot of time thinking about it. So that by the time I approached this book, Vince Jr. was very open to letting an author sort of see the reality and the complexity and the paradox of of his old man. And what father and son doesn't have this complicated relationship? And the honesty of this, the brutal honesty of it, was absolutely beautiful. Oh, I agree. I mean, every every father-son, mother-daughter relationship has some complexity to it of one degree or another. This one was a little more complex because of the father's fame and his obsession and the son's inability to break through until, until you know, it's almost too late. But that level of comprehension of, of Vince Jr., of what his father was dealing with, is quite extraordinary. Lombardi would go on to win a world championship by beating his old team, the New York Giants, and he didn't just beat the Giants, David. He destroyed them. When the score was 37 to nothing, he finally started playing his subs, and Lombardi called that title game the biggest thrill of his life. 
Well, you know, he probably thought that he was going to be the coach of the New York Giants. That was, you know, he was a New York kid. That was he liked. Uh, he and Wellington Mara both went to Fordham in the same era. There are a lot of connections there. He, he he didn't get the job, and then by the time he was might have gotten it, he didn't want to leave again. So, beating the beating the New York Giants, I would say that first thirty-seven to nothing game was probably the the most important of his career along with the last along with the ice bowl at the end. Yep. There was this great celebration at the Elks club in town <laughs> and everyone was there after this victory players too. You wrote this about Lombardi and the men he coached quote as despotic and unfeeling as he could sometimes seem on the practice field. The coach had taught them how to win. He lifted their self image. He challenged them to accomplish things that they had thought were beyond their reach. I want to play you a clip it's of Jerry Kramer talking about coach. Oh, great. And, and, and this is a guy talking possibly, David, 20 to 30 years after this incident. Let's take a listen to Jerry Kramer. I jumped off sides one time in a scrimmage, and he got in my face, and he said, Mr. The concentration period of a college student is five minutes, high school is three minutes, kindergarten is 30 seconds. You don't even have that, so where's that put you? Put me checking my shoe shine. I go up in the locker room. Sitting there, chin in my hand, elbow me, looking at the floor, thinking, I'm never going to play for this guy. He came in the door, came across the room, slapped me on the back of the neck, messed up my hair. He said, son, one of these days you're going to be the best guard in football. He turned around and walked away. And that started my motor. With that comment, he allowed me to think about being a great football. From that point on, I worked my tail off. I gave him everything I had. It made a profound impact on my life. And just listen to the emotion in that. That started my motor. It had a profound impact on my life. Don't we all wish we had somebody in our life, like a Coach Lombardi, who would push us beyond what we thought we could do? That that uh, is incredibly uh, emotional for me because my father did the same thing to me at one point where I had no clue what I was doing in my life. I was 15 years old, and he introduced me to someone and said, this is my younger son, Dave. He's going to be the best writer of all of us. Um, you know, and so I know that what, that what it means to have that motor turned on like that. And the key to Lombardi, which many... Coaches who think they're mini Lombardis don't understand is that you have to have that balance. Yes, you can be tough, but you have to have the ability to know when to when to show the love to your to your players, and that you really you know it's it's about them um, and their ability to work together. Um, and Lombardi had that. There's some Lombardi wannabes who just see the tough part of it and don't see the love part of it. Yeah, they don't see the softness either or the vulnerability, and that's right. that's a considerable uh, loss for them. Final parting thoughts here. Once that Giants game wins, in my mind, the Super Bowls were afterthoughts. They were going to happen. He had achieved all he'd achieved. What if it, Was there something after it was all done that you, you thought, I should have put that in the book. I missed it. <laughs> Boy, that's a great question. I missed a couple of stories that I wished I'd gotten. One was about Lionel Aldridge, um, the defensive end, an African-American who was in love with and married a white woman, and there was a lot of pressure um, to prevent that from happening, believe it or not, in that era. 
uh, you know, we still had that level of of racial bias. And Lombardi stood up for Aldridge and said, you know, we're human beings first and don't feel any pressure from me about that. It seems obvious now, but I wish I'd had that story in my book because it was one more level of Lombardi. I do have in the book the fact that um, his brother Harold was gay and Lombardi was terrific on on that issue, which still is not something that professional athletes can deal with in a particularly healthy way even today. But Lombardi made it clear on all of his teams that if he found anybody discriminating against someone because of their sexual orientation, they were off the team. And as a Catholic, that had to be something. I mean, he was yep. actually practicing perfect Catholicism. He was loving on the gay player. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he was practicing. I, I love the way you put that um, because there's so many different ways that people distort uh, uh, religion and, and Catholicism and and. And he was uh, applying the, 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 the fundamental love of, of, of what faith should be. And David, you did such a good job weaving in the Catholic nature of Vince Lombardi and the Catholicism that informed his entire life. And we've been talking to David Moranis, the book When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. Go to Amazon.com and order it. It was written 20 years ago, but it's still one heck of a read. Vince Lombardi's story here on Our American Stories.